Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Paris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm delighted today to have as my guest David Bonson, the CIO of the Bonson Group, a wealth management firm by Coastal based in uh, Newport Beach, California, in New York City, currently managing $2 billion on behalf of clients. More importantly, for the purposes of uh, New Books in Finance, he is the author of a very good uh, book that just came out a few months ago, The Case for Dividend Growth, Investing in a Post-Crisis World, uh, just published earlier this year by Post Hill Press. David, uh, thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, as uh, those of you who are uh, familiar with the world of uh, RIAs, registered investment advisors, or uh, mutual fund companies, there's a whole slew of lawyers keeping an eye on everything we do. And because both David and I are part of that manufacturing process, I do want to make sure that our investor, uh, uh, listeners excuse me, uh, understand certain disclaimers. That is that nothing that is said uh, here today should be construed as specific investment advice. If you are looking for uh, uh, hot stock tips, this is not the place to find it. And while we will be discussing uh, different approaches to the market and strategies, uh, again, there will be no specific performance claims that could be relevant to uh, any individual listener. Please consult uh, uh, your investment advisor. So with that out of the way, again, thank you, David. And and thank you. Uh, your, your book, The Case for Dividend Growth, Investing in a Post-Crisis World, uh, appeals to me. I I'm in the same industry as you, though a different end of it. Uh, you are, as a registered investment advisor, working with clients much closer to them than I am. I'm several layers back in the manufacturing process. And it comes out in the book, and I think it's really uh, an important thing for you to highlight, that understanding different clients' needs, psychologies, psychologies and psychologies, approaches, is really, really important for uh, making them happy as investors and and for running your business. Can you kind of comment on that? Because I think it's in the world of cut and dry formulas, understanding people is an underappreciated art. Well, it is. And I think it, it really in a large sense, the, the uh, understanding of different psychologies and of different, uh, uh, you know, human behavioral tendencies and propensities is actually at the very heart of what uh, a wealth advisor does. I think that those in the private wealth side of the business, they're involved in in financial counseling and investment direction. Um, if they really properly hone their craft, what they have developed is an intuition around the persona of a client, their, their emotional responses, their... Um, the the way in which the natural human nature uh, pendulum will swing between greed and fear. And I think that uh, where a good advisor focuses is on understanding those things and where an exceptional advisor uh, shines is in executing an investment strategy around the reality 
of of specific people and their nuances in personality and in psychology. And, you know, and for better or for worse, the University of Chicago just does not accept that notion. Everyone is identical as the same, what they call utility curves and behaves perfectly rational. And that's embedded in all of the formulas. It's just not it's just not really the case out there in the real world. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not sure how many folks are really left in academia that when you press them still hold to that hard form. Um I think that uh when when forced to admit when when you get to construct the dialogue as we're doing now and actually talk about real people, real situations and the realities of outcomes that are interdependent around behavior uh, both behavior of the client themselves and sometimes other people. Um, it's almost uh, such a painfully obvious supposition that very few are willing to deny it. Uh, I, uh, I I agree with you. And there's a slew of books that have, I've uh, authors I've interviewed uh, uh, who are chipping away even from the academic end of the Chicago model and the rational uh, actor theory. But you know, in academia, I think it's still uh, it, it's easier to teach, actually, than behavioral finance and the, and the stick, the messiness of life as it's actually lived and uh, investments as they're actually experienced. Uh, you know, the Chicago model has the uh, has certain simplicity. So, uh, but again, I agree with you that in the trenches, uh, it's it's not a very practical position uh, to to hold. One of the, one of the really nice things that your book does is provide a historical context for that investor behavior. You, you talk about your career coming up uh, and then the last 10 years after the great financial crisis. So you have the kind of the decade uh, of uh, up to the internet bubble, the internet bubble bursting, and then the financial crisis and the scarring that that represented and, the, uh, and, and then investing in the past 10 years. And you actually subtitle your book, Investing in a Post-Crisis World. That is the context of how people approach the market is really dependent upon recent history in the last two decades, the, the wild uh, zigs and zags. Do you want to kind of make your point as to why that's so important to understand that crisis? This, this is not the 1960s. This is not the 1980s, whatever. This is a, you know, grounded in, in the last 10 years of, of investing. Yeah. And I think that that's exactly the, the point I'm trying to get to in the sort of early formative chapters of the book, providing the historical context, both the history of the way market investing has played out in each of the last two decades, but also um, specific to my own career. One of the things I've been really challenged by, humbled by, but but aware of is that there are very few people that uh, become investment professionals of any sort of weight and significance that are not almost permanently colored by the era in which they grew up as an investment professional. And I think that the vast majority of people today that are that will sit around and wax and wane for for good or for bad. I, I it's not necessarily something that deserves criticism, but when those that are really focused on inflationary pressures, you usually find they cut their teeth in the seventies when commodity mm-hmm. prices were skyrocketing and things of that nature. There there are um, different hallmarks of particular eras. And for those of us that began investing in the last 25 years professionally, um, there's no question that in the early years, you live through a bubble formation of unbelievable equity returns, bubble formation specific in a sector, that being technology. 
and a arrogance that things could not be broken. This time is different. We uh, so forth and so on. And then the subsequent fallout, which which um, addressed the reality of the timing of a buy, uh, that in fact you can sure. buy something. You can, you really can buy stocks that are phenomenal companies that by overpaying you you take away the possibility of ever making money on the investment and and without getting into specific names which i think you said you didn't want to do there there are a couple you know high profile technology names uh that had they been bought at a certain price in 1999 people are still not in the money now and and it's not common it isn't like this that you're talking about hundreds and hundreds but i mean it happened it happened with big names happened to a lot of people with a lot of money so that reality of valuation sensitivity at purchase and of 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 making investment decisions as part of a process and part of a definable philosophy as opposed to just shooting in the wind what is cnbc talking about today what do clients want to buy i entered the business where i i first of all i'm grateful that the bar was so low my peers were were unimpressive to me. And I don't mean that arrogantly. <laughs> I mean that in the context of they were in the business of trying to peddle what was hot and trendy at the time. And I truly believe there had to be something deeper, more foundational. And, and that is the process by which um, I uncovered dividend growth. But then what happened to those of us that were roughly 10 years into careers at the time of the financial crisis was we got this massive reinforcement, not, you know, people that went through the bear market of 73, 74, people went through the, uh, uh, you know, obviously the depression is kind of a whole different story. The 87 crash, you, you know, you actually had a positive year in the market that year. Um, there, there, there were a number of these really bad meltdowns in the past, but there were not two that were that deep and significant that bookended a single decade. So right. it really forced people that took this career seriously to think, I think, at a more sophisticated level about risk and about a definable investment process. Well, and uh, uh, the again, back to Chicago bashing, the, the uh, risk models that are standard issue don't particularly work well for the past 10 years. This is more an editorial comment on my side when interest rates are as low as they are because they send a mixed, a, a misleading signal uh, about risk. So you, you're uh, off of the editorial and back to the book. You, you, you know, highlight the, the role, the behavioral role. You highlight the history and the place that you've ended up, the case that you make for in all of the styles that are available to investing through the stock market from you know algorithmic day trading to you know distressed turnarounds to social media only etc you you happen upon uh, a dividend oriented dividend growth style and you know there the famous morningstar style box has nine boxes it's not really realistic of what the options are but it's a good it's a good measure of the roughly the number of investment styles broadly speaking that are out there and you you've chosen one actually that isn't even in the morningstar style box uh, the, out of the 10 or 12 how how did you come to conclude that this made the most sense, the dividend growth approach? Yeah, it's a great question, and I'll kind of back up a step. You know, there there was first and foremost the process of disqualifying some of the competing approaches. It was not very difficult for me to realize that a lot of what was common or popular, and by the way, the real kind of uh, uh, passive ETF 
somewhat style box driven, but the whole issue that's be is far more trendy now than it was, uh, let's call it 15 or 20 years ago. Um, uh, so I would make this argument even more so now than it was then, but, but it was really quite clear to me that style box investing was created by consultants. It was created to provide a framework for people, uh, that they could do thoughtless investing and, and, uh, that if the purpose of having a little bit of small value and thoughtless meaning, if I may interrupt, thoughtless meaning the absence of decision making, or, the, uh, the absence of decision making, and uh, you put around a cosmetic that looked like there was decision making. Mm-hmm. So someone could say, "Hey, look, I picked this mid-growth money manager. I picked this large value mutual fund. I, I so there's a selection process. There's these value-added things that you should be paying me one and a half percent for." And and in reality, it was abundantly clear that first and foremost, what a client thought they were buying was a form of diversification. And they were essentially buying something that had a correlation of each box to each other of one whenever you needed diversification. Mm-hmm. Okay. The way in which all, what was the benefit of owning small growth and large value, whatever those distinctions allegedly meant in a period of significant market drawdown. Um, but also uh, it, it was a way to formulate a categorization of investing and do sort of performance reporting around a metric that was made up out of thin air. There is no reason why an investor ought to say, hey, how have all my companies that are 5 billion market cap done versus all my companies that are 15 billion market cap? Who cares? What does that have to do with their financial goals? And most importantly, what does it have to do with their cash flow? So it was this sort of, yeah. There's a great deal of history of the industry and the growth of intermediaries, the consultants, the benchmarks in the 70s, the 80s, and 90s. And uh, as a manufacturer, I also have to contend with the challenges of competing with a fiction, I won't call it a fictional construct, but a, a, a construct of questionable real world meaning. Well, listen, it sounds to me like you and I are, are brothers from a different mother on this stuff because yeah, I agree with you 100%. And and I th- do think, by the way, specifically of that, the intermediaries and the advent of consultants, it was 74 in the ERISA Act where I think mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. really, really got uh, uh, somewhat um, lit up in the sense that now there are all these paid uh, consultants to come in and talk to pension providers, and they were able to categorize a sort of investing approach. I, I'm all for the fact that at the end of the day, there is going to be a percentage of stocks that have certain metrics, and if you want to categorize it, you can. What I'm against, I'm, I, but I view that as an effect of a portfolio, not a cause of a portfolio. Mm-hmm. So, to me, I, I already intuitively believed. Hey, they, they, there are 16,000 people at my legacy wirehouse firm, and there were 10,000 at a competitor and 14,000 at another large competitor. And, and there were, you know, you always have the top one or 2% that are generally really outstanding practitioners, but you had an awful lot of people that you would not hire to mow your lawn, let alone manage a multi-million dollar portfolio or a multi-billion dollar book of business. And the fact that Stylebox investing was something that every single one of them could instantly intellectually comprehend meant it may not really be up to snuff. And, <laughs> and, and, and so I, I do think that ultimately the um, process of the bookends of these two massive bear markets and the reality of dealing with clients that were either pre-retired or post-retired 
that had cash flow objectives. It was the the philosophical realization that investing was always in forever by return to cash. And that when people uh, attempted to obfuscate that by saying, hey, are you here for growth or are you here for income? That they were making a distinction that they did not understand themselves. And that ultimately some return of cash, which I think is called income, whether it was in lump sum, whether it was in 20 years, whether it was in two years, or whether it was periodic. But of all the different variables that could be applied, every investor was investing for the concept of cash coming back at some present or future time in some measure. And and I felt that uh, as I studied further and further the world of dividend growth, it really helped uh, crystallize what um, I thought was needed in in juxtaposing uh, intelligent investing to the goals and practical needs of clients. I, I, uh, you know, agree. And and from John Burr Williams on, you know, you would argue that the large uh, social media and internet stocks that don't currently have dividends uh, are just future dividend payers. They just don't know it yet. Uh, But, and you could do a net present value of their future dividends. It probably wouldn't equal the current value, but it's neither here nor there. You could argue that all businesses, all assets, uh, hearkening back to Irving Fisher in 1906, the value of any asset, regardless, farmland, a business, any company dividend paying or not is the present value of its future cash flows. Uh, but the reality of the industry as we know it is that some people couldn't care less about that, just couldn't care less. They just want to buy low, sell high, repeat frequently, and the cash flows are are not uh, not relevant to to their exercise. And I, that's just, you know, it's well, a free but, country. But, you know, yeah, but I do think, though, that what you just said is really important. It, 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 we have to separate the um, fundamentals of the company and how people say, oh, I don't care about the fundamentals of the cash flow of the company, which is the category you're referring to and the way that we would measure investment success and in whether we're talking about Benjamin Graham, whether we're talking about Irving Crystal, some of the economic presuppositions that you and I deal with. I'm referring to the cash flow to the investor. So when they say, I want to buy low, sell high, when they say, give me a hot dot stock, I'm buying it at 10, I'm selling it at 50, I don't care about cash flows. I say, yes, you do. You just cared about a $40 cash flow. You had a net 10 outflow and a net 50, in, uh, uh, gross 50 in, you have a net $40 cash flow. That's what you cared about. So now let's have a question. Let, let, let's answer the question. What's a more repeatable, sustainable, um, and an intelligent way to generate those cash flows to you that you care about? Is it to continue buying at 10 and selling at 50 over and over? Or is it through repeatable companies, intelligent managements, defensible business models that are just going to go ahead and give you a dollar here and two dollars there over and over and over again? How, how are you more likely to keep getting that $40 cash flow? So, so, so I guess I'm, I'm equivocating on the use of the term cash flow here and personalizing it to the investor as opposed to referring it as an investment ingredient. And so the the uh, uh, you know challenge again coming from the textbooks is that the uh, the cash flow of the sale a capital gain you know it's generally been favored 
by many investors over the past decade of a, of a market rally, whereas you and I tend to prefer a, a, the different pattern of cash flows, which is uh, uh, compounding uh, regular payment of a dividend. Uh, you know, it, it be, creates almost a philosophical issue. I, I was uh, engaged with a uh, sort of social media with someone uh, back and forth as to whether a dividend payment or a transaction is philosophically the same. From a tax perspective or a cash perspective, it may or may not be that you get a dividend quarterly or you can sell a little bit of the assets each quarter and uh, and and derive the same exact outcome, maybe slightly better off, slightly worse off from a tax perspective. And I said, no, philosophically, I am of the view that uh, ownership of an asset uh, and the receipt of the income stream without having to uh, go into the marketplace and, and uh, have a transaction is philosophically different than regularly um, uh, harvesting capital gains. But you know, I think it's a minority view in, in the marketplace. The marketplace is very happy to just assume capital gains ad infinitum and use that as the definition of of uh, you know meeting cashing certainly pension funds do that they seem unusually uninterested in dividends strategies uh, and they're very happy just to capital uh, as I said harvest capital gains when they need them. Yeah, well, there's a couple comments there. First, let me put the pension thing aside because of course it's categorically different. In that case, pensions have inflows. Pensions have monies, cash coming in to the fund, and so they get they have the luxury of feeling differently about a pool of assets and the liquidity that is needed from it, where in theory, they can have a drawdown in the value of their pension and not need the capital gain, but still have liquidity to make payments because they have corresponding mm-hmm. yeah. inflows from, from participants. But the reality is that, of course, you're right, that it's trendy right now to say we are fine to uh, harvest capital gains as a, as, a, as a mechanism for meeting liquidity needs. When the market went up nine years in a row and the <laughs> Fed put $4 trillion on their balance sheet and we spent seven years at the zero bound. And, 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 and a lot of other things, too. I don't want to make it sound sinister that it was the recovery it was. I, I think it was a perfectly fundamentally driven recovery at a profit trough. And then you had incredible profit expansion. I expect the market would have done well in that period. But my point being, let's just apply their mathematical logic, not to your projection or my projection or their projection, but to history. How would it have worked to just simply systematically sell from an S&P 500 when one takes a lump sum at the beginning of the year 2000 and starts withdrawing from it month by month by month after that? Well, they would have depre- they would have run out of money. They would have deteriorated capital. And in fact, they would have done that where now here we are 20 years later and the S&P is up quite a bit. And yet the negative compounding that they would have forced themselves into would have eroded at their capital. But I would make an even bigger point that sounds like you were making with the gentleman you were arguing with, that philosophically, it's not only not the same in a risk reward uh, trade-off. It's not only not the same um, in terms of the mechanics of what it means for an investor, and by the way, the tax efficiency and all the other things too, but it also is not the same in the enterprise of investing in a company. The fact of the matter is, is that the dividend cannot go negative. 
to invest in capital gains and say, I'm going to just sell systematically at my investment. We let's use the index. So we don't pick on any given company. You have a standard deviation of roughly 16% over a 30 year period annualized in the broad equity market. You do not get the positive return of the market without five, 10, 15, and even of course in bear markets worse downturns. Dividends do not go negative. So you intrinsically are guaranteeing a different comparative process by withdrawing from something that is only able to go up versus something that can actually go below zero. Withdrawing from something that is up negative 9% is different than withdrawing from something that is no matter what three, four, five, whatever the dividend may be. And for uh, for listeners, uh, David's book has these charts shown up with the compounding, the consequences of, of a draw uh, uh, during a market draws down and what that does to capital. This is all uh, very clearly uh, and visually presented as well. So uh, another reason to to uh, look into the, to the, the book itself. So we have this kind of philosophical difference and the the practical difference. I, I almost not to circle back to the beginning of the interview, but you know we've had in on my end of the process, we've had clients who said, yeah, really like the dividends, really like the conservative approach, really like the dividend growth approach to it. And then three years later, when, uh, you know, information technology is up 50% and the dividend uh, securities are up 30%, they say, I just can't take it anymore. I don't care anymore. And uh, they, you know, they, you know, that's, that's the nature of the job. It's the nature of the beast. It's, it's the challenge we all face. Um, and 10 years into that type of experience, you know, the, I have to ask the question how, you know, how long that will continue. But let's let's not get there. We'll save that for the end. Let's get a little bit to the mechanics of dividend growth. You do spend, you know, for your book, for listeners, it's not very long. Uh, it is, uh, you know, 130 pages or so. Uh, it's very easy to read. 100, I'm sorry, 150 pages or so. Uh, you know, some of the mechanics of dividend growth that you as a registered investment advisor, when you're putting client portfolios together, in addition to taking into account the math of their withdrawals, their age, and their sensibilities. You know, what what are you looking for both in manufactured products or for choosing the securities yourself that constitutes dividend growth? The reason I mentioned that or asked that question is because the difference between a 1% yielding security growing at 6, 7, 8, 9% the dividend and a 3 or 4 or 5% security, uh, yielding security growing at 4 or 5 percent uh the dividend um they both can be called dividend growth but there is a world of difference between the two and and you know how do you in which direction do you uh, do you lean and why so i i wrote at great length in the book about the two aspects of dividend oriented investing that we don't do that we don't like like in other words here's what i'm not meaning and one is the high yield non-growing uh, aspect of dividends. Those companies that are what we would call accidental high yielders, they perhaps had a were a $100 stock with a $4 dividend, and now they're a $50 stock with a $4 dividend. You go, oh, look, I'm getting 8%. And I say, okay, well, that's not how you want to get it. And, and I would argue a very, very often susceptible to dividend cut and a fundamental erosion of the business. Not always. There can be real values in those situations, but we're not looking for high yielders per se. 
but subsequently, the other example you use is a 1% yielder that might have 6 to 10% annual growth ahead. We also are not looking for what is traditionally called the aristocrats only. We want to combine a meaty enough dividend that the current yield meets our risk appetite, meets a cash flow need, and yet has the growth accompanied with it. So the way we set the barometer, I'll admit, by the way, that I've adjusted this over the years as conditions warranted and as my philosophy improved, and I don't just mean evolved, I actually do think that we improved here. We used to set a hard uh, uh, numerical, an absolute yield level. But the fact of the matter is, as anybody who's been investing for this generation knows, you you set an absolute yield in any asset class you want, it is going to be relative to the risk-free rate. And in an interest rate environment where the 10-year is at 5%, stock yields are going to be different than where the 10-year is hung around the 2% mark for the last decade. So rather than say it has to have a 5% entry yield or a 3% entry yield, both of which, by the way, were past uh, real-life examples of our metric, uh, we now say we would like it to have higher than the S&P 500 yield. Now, we're still managing to a blended composite yield across the portfolio. So let's just say I'm making up a number that the S&P yield was 2% and we found 30 companies that we liked at 2.2%. We probably would not do that because we are trying to aspire to something of a blended yield at purchase of closer to 4%. But the growth of the dividend on a forward basis, and then, of course, we're often looking at the propensity for that out of the backward-looking dividend growth as well, that's the most important metric. We just simply filter out a lot of the one and two percenters just because it's not enough to wet our beak. Mm -hmm. We are often asked uh, in similar exercises to hey, why don't you throw a certain prominent company? And I know it, it's got a great dividend growth record, but you know it's got a you know a one and a half or two percent yield. And I said we could do that, but it would lower the cash flow to our customers at least in year one, and potentially significantly because it might replace you know that percentage of assets could replace something that had been yielding three or four percent, and so you're cutting the income stream by half at least at the beginning. That might or might not be a very good long-term move, but it certainly is a painful near-term move, and and you know makes it harder to go down into that low range. Yeah, it it, it definitely does, and so I think that you that again these things have to be done at a portfolio level. It, it you have to kind of take a global view. Of uh, and we we there's certain things we can do with one company depending on what we've done with another, and so we run a lot of metrics and blend a lot. I think it would kind of bore our listeners to death, but you probably know the type of stuff I'm thinking about. And our appetite to take a lower yielder in or to keep one. See, see, this is another thing I write about great length in the book that is so important is the metric of yield on original investment. And, and so we have companies right now that have, uh, there's one company that has a current yield of 1.6%. And I just can't stand buying it for new clients because it doesn't meet our metric and we haven't had the guts to sell it. Yet our yield on original investment for people that have owned it in the roughly 10 years we've owned it is something around 25%. <laughs> Okay. And so you, and so the cash flow is actually quite significant relative to purchase price, but that's because we've had such a big capital gain in this particular company. And the reason to sell it would not be, well, we're going to make 
people that own it for a long time suffer because we don't want to buy it for new people anymore. We can customize, you know, who we buy and who we don't sell for and things like that. But it's also because how did the company get to position that the yield is only one and a half percent unless their businesses has suffered, which in this case it is not. Um, and it happens to be the greatest free cash flow generator in world history. What is the problem as to why their dividend growth is not kept up with their ability to print cash? Mm -hmm. I think it speaks to a fundamental that's important to us and why ultimately I don't think that we'll own the stock uh, very much longer. So a couple timely issues, and you, you, know, you, you uh, address them, but I think they're top of mind for a lot of investors as we think about this. And it really is over the past 10 years, a post-crisis world, there are a number of factors that just make kind of the clear business ownership compounding of cash flows approach that you're advocating. It muddies the waters. The first is, is ETFs and passive investing. And you know, I, we are both intermediaries, so it's, we probably lean in one direction. But uh, even ETFs and passive investing actually have a lot of people behind the scenes as intermediaries. They're not as passive as they appear. But I, for your specific business, I think it's, it's fair and it's not a compliance issue just to discuss whether you have any philosophical thoughts for or against uh, that approach to 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 dividend growth, uh, whether it's individual securities or pooled investment vehicles and ETFs. And then the second question, which uh, I, I alluded to earlier, but really is important in the last 10 years is, is the interest rate structure, both as a measure of comparative return, but also as a measure of risk and how we understand these companies versus maybe those that don't have dividends, but, but could be riskier. I mean, they're you know, beyond the mechanics of, of the, of dividend growth, but they are very, uh, you know, they're, they're issues that clients think about all the time right now, I think. Yeah. They think about all the time right now, whether they know they are thinking about it or not. In <laughs> other words, there's, there, there's a lot of, um, uh, maybe subconscious, uh, thoughts that, that take place that would amount to some of these topics you're bringing up and people may not always be, sort of self-aware about it. But but let me address the first thing about the product or the vehicle or the mechanism. Um, you know, we have this philosophical commitment to the concept of dividend growth. We believe in dividend growth as a way for people to accumulate capital for future income needs. And we believe in dividend growth as a mechanism for people to withdraw from capital. Um, and so the when someone says to me, hey, I'm 40 and I'm not going to retire for 20 years, so can you go get me all these hot dot social media stocks? But then when I'm 60, I'll do your dividend growth. I have to walk through and explain how, no, I actually believe the far, far, far better growth accumulation strategy for you will be dividend growth. And they go, well, then how could that work for the 65-year-old who starts withdrawing from the capital? And I always explain, it is not about, I like company ABC when you're 40 and I don't like it when you're 65. I happen to like the company for both, but in one case, I'm reinvesting the dividends and in the other case, I'm withdrawing the dividends. It's purely a mechanical difference. So we, we um, uh, the, the question then becomes from that step, back to your question, how do I feel philosophically about using a product to to capture or to execute on on that exposure that I want? And and my answer is that I am fine with a product if it is actively managed and forward looking and has human beings making decisions. But this is not a product, a strategy, or philosophy that I believe can be. Uh, uh, programmed or algorithmic or passively set and forget. 
Um, I, I get the argument in the kind of Bogle land about active versus passive in the overall mutual fund world versus the overall index fund world. But to the extent that one has bought into dividend growth as a philosophy. So of course, a lot of people won't buy into it. And a lot of people may not agree with it. A lot of people may not believe it. That's fine. But once one has accepted the arguments I make in the book for the case for dividend growth, then I do not believe it is possible for the case for dividend growth to work in a backward-looking passive vehicle. This is worth just highlighting that that, uh, everyone needs to understand that despite the history of ETFs and passive investments and a very impressive history, both from a return perspective and a uh, marketing perspective, that those instruments are backward-looking and they're using historical data even where they claim that the algorithm is forecasting future returns. They are not making decision decisions about the future businesses, uh, uh, business decisions about uh, future outcomes. And some investors will prefer the absence of humans and a backward looking view. Listen, it worked in the past. It'll work in the future, whatever. Uh, others like you and myself uh, absolutely insist on making a decision about the future. You may be making the decision under conditions of uncertainty. We all are every day. We make decisions under conditions of uncertainty, but I feel vastly more comfortable, and I clearly you do as well, in doing so rather than saying, well, whatever happened in the past will continue happening in the future, uh, even in dividend land, because that's just not the case. But I would argue, especially in dividend land. See, I think that if someone says, uh, by the way, I, I let's make an anecdotal point from from the way I view it. Even in the broader subject of active versus passive, and we're just simply talking about total return, like my mutual fund A can outperform your index fund B, even in that debate where right now the passive guys are, are waving the victory flag, even then I think they're actually debating against themselves because they're comparing to a bunch of mutual funds that are really closet index funds. They're basically comparing a passive index to an active index because the mutual fund has an R squared or a beta or a correlation or whatever metric you want to use that is so high and an active share that is so low that it isn't even really active management. But but let's put that debate aside for a second. It's really important I make this qualifier. I'm only talking to the subset of people like you and me and others that invest with people like us that have accepted dividend growth as the philosophy for them. Within that, I don't think there's room to suggest that one can simply take backward looking. We have too much precedent. When the Fed comes in and tells some of the great dividend payers and growers of two decades, you are no longer allowed to pay a dividend in, uh, starting in 2009, that is a pretty clear uh, reason for an active manager to get involved. When one of the largest industrial companies in history and has the, all the precedent in history of Thomas Edison and light bulbs comes in and all of a sudden the management tells you we're not so prone on a dividend anymore and uh, maybe in a year we might cut it all together. That's a really strong call for someone to have seen it ahead of time or to react to it after the fact, etc. Mm-hmm. I think that the... Um, it is, it is not something that requires academic argument. It really is uh, painfully clear in the testimony of history that there are companies that run into situations where philosophically, with management, 
with strategy, with the nature of their business, that all kinds of things will come up that could jeopardize the dividend and that there is no ability and a passive backward looking approach to defend against that. And we we do see, unfortunately, you know, in my in my line of business, we're manufacturing similar products that uh, you know companies change direction and businesses change conduction. And maybe a computer picks that up, and maybe it doesn't. But you know, individuals are the individuals that we are using that you're using are are paid and trained to to capture those inflection points in in in, uh, in the businesses. Uh, uh, activity. Well, that that is a strong statement uh, in favor of active management. I, I'm I'm going to choose not to disagree with you, <laughs> given my <laughs> given my situation. Um, so now, can I make can I make a point about that? By the way, sure. Uh, so I said in the book, um, people may accuse me right now of talking my book, and people could accuse you of talking your book. But here's the thing: I would say from my wealth management standpoint, I freely say. Okay, of course it looks as if I'm talking my book because I actively manage dividend growth. But hold on a second. I don't have to. I get up at 345 every morning of my life. I am combing through research papers, reading hundreds of research papers, a uh, pages a day. I, I am working around the clock, around a philosophy I deeply and passionately believe in. But if I thought a passive vehicle would do all the work for me. Why I have no reason to not believe in that. I just want to deliver to my clients the exposure and experience of dividend growth. So if anyone has a vested interest in finding a passive uh, in uh, capturing of this, it would be me. I'm not looking to do this for my sake. You see my, you see the point I'm making? And, and so I think that um, the industry will get better and better creating product. They'll also create an awful lot of products that don't make it. You know how, how that goes. And you and I have seen it a lot over the years. But I really believe that most people, if they view a stock um, as a company, as an operating business, the reality about index investing and even about conversations around stock market investing is we have so decoupled people's thinking about their investing from companies and businesses and made it about stocks and trading cards. And it's very similar to what casinos so effectively do when they give you chips at a blackjack table. You don't really think anymore that you're playing with money. You, you feel like you're playing with sort of a prop. And and I and I and I I really do believe that's had a bad effect in the investing public. I uh, do not agree with you, and I'm in print. I do not disagree with you. I'm sorry, I'm in, in print using almost the exact same metaphors though uh, some time ago. Um, it, I, I I did come out with a, a number of uh, written work similar in spirit to this maybe ten years ago. What I think is really really helpful. And uh, a good reason for those who, who might have uh, read The Strategic Dividend Investor is the case for dividend growth uh, by David Bonson is out now and it comes in the aftermath of a 10-year rally, a post-crisis world, unusually low interest rates and fiddling with risk rates and fiddling with the conception of the market. And, and yet here is a very, very disciplined account of sticking to business ownership, compounding cash flows, and not being sidetracked by CNBC and Squawk Box, and some very dramatic gyrations of share prices, uh, frankly, mostly up 
in the past decade, but they can also go down. So I, I want to commend uh, David for uh, kind of sticking to the knitting uh, here and providing an updated, whereas all of my data ends in 2009, 2010. Uh, his book is chock full of data on why this is a sensible approach uh, through uh, uh, the last decade. So uh, the, the the book is The Case for Dividend Growth, Investing in a Post-Crisis World by David Bonson, CIO of the Bonson Group. David, thank you. Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to make sure that uh, the listeners have, have got uh, before we sign off? Well, no, I really do appreciate the opportunity to talk about the book. Enjoyed the conversation. It's so nice to know uh, other like-minded professionals out there and and hope we can stay in touch. I hope all of the listeners have gotten something out of this today. And I also do want to, uh, uh, at non-book advertisement, uh, David has a uh, dividend uh, podcast called The Dividend Cafe. It's actually how I happened upon him and then his book. And uh, it is in the world of podcasts, and, and this is a, just a free advertisement. I listen to a lot of podcasts some of them are good. Some of them are not. David's are short. They're 15 to 20 minutes. They're tightly written. They're topical. They're weekly. They're easily digestible and they're actionable for thinking people. I mean, they're not uh, about uh, individual stock picks, uh, but they are help people understand what's going on in the, in the stock market. So uh, I encourage people to uh, uh, also, uh, look up and subscribe to the Dividend Cafe. David, thank you so much for, for being a, uh, a guest on uh, New Books in Finance uh, and, and good luck with the book. Thank you so much.